Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Yo, people, Anna David with After Party Pod. After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, a website determined to change the face and get rid of the stigma around addiction and recovery. Now, After Party is a part of RehabReviews.com, the world's largest resource for treatment centers across the globe. You can go there to see if your rehab stay could be free. Go to RehabReviews.com slash benefits dash check. What else can you do there, you may ask? You can get a Recover Girl t-shirt. Just go to RehabReviews.com slash after dash party slash shop. Anyway, you'd know all of this if you were signed up for our newsletter. What are you doing? Go sign up. RehabReviews.com slash newsletter dash sign dash up. Now here's the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey there, you guys. This is After Party Pod, the podcast about addiction recovery. And today you get to hear me be, I'm not little intimidated by the guest. I'm not going to lie. I'm always incredibly honored uh, and, and frankly feel pr- privileged when anybody agrees to come on this podcast and be incredibly open about difficult things that might help other people. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I'm a little intimidated. I'll tell you how this one came about. Well, anyway, I'm just going to tell you, I'm bad at suspense. And you already know this if you downloaded it. It's with director Mark Pellington, writer, director, producer Mark Pellington. And in case you don't know, he's a huge music video director who's uh, also directed the movies The Mothman Prophecies, Arlington Road, uh, something called I Melt With You, which is, I, I don't think the word nihilistic does justice to it. And to see that movie... Yeah, you're going to think that the guy who wrote and directed it had some experience with with addiction and drugs and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, we came to know each other because one day, one fateful day, he asked to be my Facebook friend. And I thought, oh my God, that's Mark Pellington, the director. I'm a fan of his. This is cool. And then he liked a couple of the things I posted about recovery. And I said, I've got this sneaking suspicion. This guy is in recovery. And it turns out I was right. And he very generously agreed to come on this show. Now, I would say I talk a lot less in this interview than I normally do because I've realized something, and that is that a good interview often involves the interviewer not yammering on all the time. Sometimes I'll listen to these and and think, God, I wish I had just let the person talk a little bit more. And I think I've learned this uh, also because... I, as I told you guys, I became certified to become a life coach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of intimidation, who's intimidated now? And I have started doing the life coachery. 
which is not a word as far as I know, but but maybe I'll go trademark it. Doubt that. But I have started to do a little bit of it and record it. And my concept is that since I post this podcast every other week to post these life coach episodes every other week under the title and name After Party Sessions. What do you think of that? Anyway, life coaching, I have learned, involves not a lot of talking. You are not a therapist. You are not a sponsor. You are not a psychiatrist. You are simply there listening and prodding the person. And I discovered in doing this that people say much more interesting things if you just allow them to keep talking. I know that one of the skills when I was a celebrity interviewer, one of the things you were supposed to do to kind of get people to say things that they wouldn't really, their publicist wouldn't want them to say is just let there be an awkward silence, pause, and have it be uncomfortable. And then they'll try to fill the pause with something. I never could do that. My, my, uh, my special skill was tell them something super embarrassing and revealing, and then they'll do the same. Kind of worked. I'll be honest. Anyway, back to the show. Uh, it's a pretty serious one. Uh, we get into we get into the real shit, you know. So that's it. This is Mark Pellington. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my god! I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the as right. I call it the autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? I just start this thing and we just sort of start talking and that's sort of how it goes, really. It is. That's what it is. But what you need to do, this will be my one order. You need to hold the mic oh, up yeah. to your mouth rather than just like gazing at your glasses. Oh, no. I was planning on that. Um... So, so we're doing an interview. We're, we're doing on a little talk show. Well, yeah, this is like a talk show, except not at all. But um, I'm in your gorgeous office. Okay. And as I said, I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this. My pleasure. Thank so, you. So, well, yeah. So. Thank you for having me. Have you here? I well, thank you for thanking me for having. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And so, and so, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I told you. And I have a friend who worked for you many years ago, so I, you know, knew about you. And, um, and then, you know, I was really flattered slash honored slash wow when you, re- you know, you friended me one day on Facebook. I said, what is this famous director doing friending me on Facebook? Famous, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I never, I don't equate me with that person. Uh, really? Yeah, not at all, I don't. Martin Scorsese's famous, Steven Spielberg's famous. They are famous too, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson is yeah. famous, David Fincher's famous. There's a lot more famous, it's all relative, I guess. It's a, it is all relative, um, you know, it, it, and obviously if you've made movies that, um, that I've been drawn to, it has more significance than somebody, you know, it's all relative. But, yes. so that happened, and I said, oh, well, maybe this is like an aberration, who knows why that happened, and then you started liking some of the things I wrote about addiction and recovery, and yes. so my brain said, I wonder if that guy knows about addiction and recovery. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I had seen I Melt With You. Uh-huh. And so I said, I bet you that guy knows something about addiction and recovery. Deeply. Yeah. Deeply. I wonder, I probably, uh, it'd be curious to, to know the lineage and the what I liked in terms of what you posted in terms of 
where I was and what year that was. It was all this year. It all just happened. Okay, okay. So this was all purely... Last six um, months, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, so I could give you... You could ask me. I could give you the kind of my... Yeah. His, how I got here. Yeah. My history of recovery, sobriety, addiction. That's and, what I want. Um, how we got to this day in the end of October before Halloween in a windy day here in Los Angeles. That's what I want to do. So, okay, so let's trace it back. And we can do this however you want. Like, we can go back to your childhood. We can start when you first started, you know, uh, you get to New York and you're at MTV and everything's so wild and crazy. However you want to do it, Mark. I think probably in a linear way, because I think if we start at the beginning, uh... I think if you started being it, it'll help me just see it, and then it's, you just tell the story. Yeah. Because I think people, one thing that I always noted and always really liked, when people would tell me the, their stories, when I would hear speakers, and somebody would say, in their childhood and how they started drinking and how they started using and how they started doing whatever, I think how we start, where we came from, parentally, location-wise, culturally, is a big, is a huge thing as to how we start reaching out for the things to, that later numb us or protect us, yet at the time, maybe enlighten us or take us out of our head, but the head you need to get out of it 15 is different than the head you want to get out of it 45. Yes, and would you say, maybe this is implied and obvious, that the head at 45 is a lot more challenging to get out of than the head at 15? Yes. Um, did My you... theory is that when you're younger, you walk, and there's a part of this in the film, I'm Not With You, and it's actually on my website under like a teaser. It's this voiceover thing I wrote, and it was about that you start when you're younger, and life is all ahead of you. And it's, you have your blinders on. And yeah. all it is like you're a horse galloping out of your teen years into your 20s. And it's like the fucking future is limitless. Yeah. If you say to somebody and they're 18 years old, 25 years from now, you'd be like, that's sci-fi, man. That is sci-fi. Yeah. But you live enough and you go through and you get like the death of a parent. You go through these life experiences and some people are hit with it. In their 20s, some people not to their 40s. Right. When you have the blinders and you're going through the, you know, you're headed headlong into the future, at a certain point, you start to turn in and they become mirrors and they're like, hey, I'm actually actually like a racehorse. I'm about a third of the way around the track. Right. Things about your own mortality, your skin, your, your, your changes, your changes and your also your collective wisdom and experience. So with that, to go back to start with yes. the, the drinking, I think I was born to drink, number one, mm-hmm. because I was born into a family where my father owned a bar and restaurant. Where was, was this again? In Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. So my father was a very f- famous in Baltimore, very successful and famous professional football player. Uh-huh. And um, he, we grew up in the Burbs in Baltimore. And he had been a successful football player and owned a bar and restaurant. After his football career. After his playing career. And so when you grow in, when you grow up in that environment, you grow up around alcohol. 
and my parents drank and my parents would have parties and stuff, so I never thought anything about it. So I think I probably had my first drink when I was 14. Mm -hmm. My older siblings at the time, 17 and 18, would have parties with their friends over when my parents were gone and they would have beers and I remember drinking a beer when I was probably um, 13. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the taste, kind of wasn't sure of the taste of it. Gross at first, weird. Yeah, at first, but then you have a couple more sips and you're like, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah. And I remember them teasing, uh, saying, hey, I bet you can't drink a beer in 45 seconds and of course I do. Yeah. So you take I, that you childhood dare. Yeah. But there was one there was one event in my childhood that kind of changed where I changed in terms of um, substances. I was in the Jersey Shore. We had a house in the Jersey Shore that we'd go to every summer. That mm-hmm. my little cottage that my father had got when he was playing pro football. So I'd go there, and instead of being around preppy boys all during the year, I was with public school kids from New Jersey and mm-hmm. Northern Jersey and stuff. It was great. Mm-hmm. And every summer I was always into like sports and baseball and trading, you know, jock stuff. Girls, partying, was it didn't really, it was that summer maybe before seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh. And um, one night my brother on the beach invited me to uh, join him in this football game against the opposing beach. It seems like an innocuous moment, but it was profound because mm-hmm. I played in the game, and at that first time I was kind of accepted into the older kids group. Right. And that night, instead of going back to my house and playing with my friend playing baseball cards, they said, oh, you should come to the party. Mm-hmm. So you're 14, but you're going to 15 and 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds. So you go there, and in one night it was my exposure to Miller Lite, Hash, uh, a girl, and I ended up like making out and uh, exploring a girl underneath the lifeguard stand after getting stoned, drinking like five beers, and listening to Thin Lizzy. It was totally like the night that changed my life. Right, right. Thank God. Right. I wasn't going back to baseball cards after that. Right, never went back. It is interesting because for me, the first time I drank was like whatever, but it was the first time that that was sort of combined with some sort of a like experience with a boy. That was, it was that combination for, you know, and I hear people talk and it's not like that for a lot of people. They just sort of drink and it's magic and it doesn't matter what happened, but it was that distinct combination that, that made it, it was like, oh my God, I have the power to get this thing that is going to really change how I feel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I do. And it was that, I specifically, the detail and the vivid, the vivid recollection I have of that evening, it was also of acceptance. Yeah. It was also not that I felt like I had been pushed away. My brother was very welcoming to me in my life. He was a huge mentor in my life. Uh, and a big, big influence, and a great, great older brother. Which is rare, I would yeah, say. Yeah, he wasn't like, get out of here, kid. Yeah. He's very, very cool. Two years older than you? Three, and mm-hmm. to this day. To this day, uh-huh. he's my favorite He's my favorite person in the world. Um, but at that moment, I remember being like, wow, that was, there was something that felt good about it. And um, so that kind of continued. So I went back to school... And would, you know, then go to, like, these little weekend eighth grade parties and you'd 
somebody would sneak some beer mm -hmm. and then they, you'd make out with the girl mm -hmm. in ninth grade and then you'd go back for the summer back mm -hmm. to the thing so it became part and parcel and it was normal in mm -hmm. Baltimore it was normal that ninth grade kids would have parties and get some beer 10th grade and you would drive and you were 16 and you would you knew the bars that you could go to that they would serve you. The drinking age was 18. So it was completely normal, completely accepted, and nobody questioned it. Nobody frowned upon it. Uh, Question. I Sorry, yes. I don't want to interrupt no, no, you. Fine. As a father, does that scare you? As a father now? Yes. 2015? Yes, with your daughter growing up. Oh, come on. You're not scared of when that mm. stuff happens? I'm not scared of it. I mean, it's part of every parent's kind of reality that you have to deal with it and deal with a multitude of, you know, whether it's drinking or social media or there's so many pervasive temptations and thoughts. Um, I think I could get to my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter's perspective on alcohol later in my story. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, sorry. Like, I interrupted no, the No, no, that's fine. Because uh, I think of my experience as she, you know, it, it, it's interesting, um, her perspective on it, mm -hmm. on, on, on alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I was normal, normal high school guy, and, um, but I think I continued through, so everybody drank, everybody I knew drank. But it was all always just booze and maybe some pot. Never a big pot guy. Never a big, didn't like it, made me spacey and mm -hmm. paranoid. And it was not a huge, not a huge pot guy. Yeah, me neither. And uh, went to college, followed my brother to the University of Virginia in 1980. And Virginia was a huge party school. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, it was when I was in college too. Huge party yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you get introduced to other uh, substances, coke, ecstasy, shrooms, the whole potpourri, and totally, um, you know, experienced those, enjoyed those, had no negative consequences other than, you know, the after effects of it. Mm -hmm. um, Virginia was very much a hotbed of experimentation at mm -hmm. that time in the early 80s, and it was widely used and accepted and um yeah but it was going to school and getting good grades and playing lacrosse and being in the sports team and being responsible so in a way like the idea was if you weren't hurting anybody i knew of no one that had a quote-unquote drinking problem right there was nobody like going into recovery or addicted at that age i mean um at the time you're in it, you're like, boy, you probably, you drank way more than the average, yeah. than the average student. So the first time it probably reared its head that I looked at my own drinking was uh, my third year in college. I was there for summer school and got a DUI. Mm -hmm. So I got a DUI, like it happens to a lot of people. And uh, But back then it was harder to get them because they would just be like, oh, you're wasted, go home. A lot of the time, as opposed to now. Where oh you my God! It was it was not like hey, uh, designated drop. None of that. Yeah. None of that. It was, but if you got it, it was very serious, and um, you didn't lose your license. But it was definitely a um, a bummer. And in retrospect, thank God that no, no one was hurt. Yeah. 
Uh, I was driving a short distance, still no excuse ever, 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 ever to get behind the wheel. Right. But at age 20, did not know that and had to take a class mm-hmm. um, that fall. You know, it was like you had to go for th- four hours every Sunday to uh, alcohol education. Mm-hmm. And in it, they ask you about how many drinks a week you have. And you're like, you're like oh, boy, I have a lot more than anybody else in the class. Mm-hmm. But did um, you lie? Did I lie? No, I did not lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, so I probably, that was the first time I was like, huh, what's this about? Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't change my behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, moved to New York, no money, didn't matter. You're all around a group, 1984, like no money. Like living on literally $20 a day after you pay your rent and your bills but you're with people at MTV and you're going out all the time. How you manage to go to parties and go to places and you know, a beer was a buck. Mm-hmm. You know, you could get a six pack for three bucks. Um, again, completely, you go to parties, completely the exposure to drugs and alcohol was, was pretty rampant. Uh, you know, you're a block from the Palladium and people are like, Hey, you want to smoke some crack, or you just like so you you explore these things, but you realize again when you're working, you're going to work every day at eight thirty. So you have what you consider to be pretty crazy fun party times. Yet you're showing up every day for work. You're not. It's not getting in the way. It's not mm-hmm. interfering with your job. It's not interfering with your relationships. So you think, right? But. Literally can look back and be like, boy, oh, that was my problem with it, or boy, that's where a relationship, or that's where I fucked up. Um, nothing strikes me as being other than I was responsible. I did my work, and we, as a group of friends, we all went out all the time to, and yeah. partied. Now, and I knew no one sober. I wouldn't have been like, maybe there were people that weren't drinking, but at that time, I was like, I don't know anybody that didn't drink yeah yeah I so tell me about like you you go there you get a job at MTV like just to weave in some of what you were doing in life at that point well I when I grabbed after my third year at UVA I got an internship there and went up and spent the summer my fraternity had a chapter at Columbia so I got a room there spent the summer in New York and fell in love with it the pace of it the the art the music just the total energy of the place was off the hook great crazy and I was like oh my god I am in love with New York City I will do anything to get a job here Mm -hmm. Um, after I graduate and tried and tried record companies PR firms anything to do in public relations media not even film Mm -hmm. I really want to work for a record company and write record reviews or work for a label and sign bands music Mm -hmm. was my passion journalism was my passion like if I could write for Rolling Stone or Spin and sign cool bands, that would have been my job. Mm-hmm. That would have been like perfect. So when I fell into the internship at MTV, I got the job, thank God. Um, after college, they said, Do you want to interview to be a PA? Took a train up, interviewed, got the job. Mm-hmm. Moved up, lived with my aunt and uncle in Jersey mm-hmm. for six months until I became on staff, and then I moved into Manhattan and mm-hmm. lived with three dudes in a place on 13th Street, the brownstone where Keitel was shot by De Niro in Taxi Driver. Literally, right there. 
a block from Variety Photo Plays, a block from the Palladium. NYU wasn't there. New York was still very dangerous, still very scary. Times Square was very scary yeah. and great. And this is the $20 a day survival day. $20 a day survival. New York art world exploding. Punk had become mainstream. It was a great time. It was really, really a great, a great time to be there. And MTV was this just this little brand cal new little cauldron thing. of creativity, and it kind of encouraged me to trust my instincts and uh, just self-taught, really self-taught as a producer and creator. Okay, so I told you I'm narcissistic, so I'm going to weave it back down to, back to me. Good. Well, it's interesting because I just realized the very first time I drank, I was sitting in a park in Marin County, and MTV, we were talking, MTV had just started, and we were talking about, I guess it was like Video Killed the Radio Star was like the first video. Right. Oh, Dire Straits. We were talking about that Dire Straits that video. Money for Nothing. Yes. Right, so that was 84, 84. Five. Or 82, maybe, who knows, who knows. No, the Dire Straits was later, because I was working there at that okay. point. And I remember when the video came in, and so you were 14. 14. I, in my head, I was 12, so who knows? 12, but yeah. God, that's a strong No, you're memory. probably right. No, you're right. You're, you're yeah. Um, you, know, you know how old you were, not me. Well, yeah, but I, I, I do, you know, you were talking before about aging, and I want to work back to that, because, God, am I in it, and how awful. I'm really struggling with that. You're struggling with it? Yes. Now? Yes, and I never did before. You know, I think we all go through that at different points. Um, for whatever reason, I'm really in it this mid year. Mid-40s? We don't mid talk, we can't talk about it because it's traumatic for me. mid Maybe I'm close to that, yeah. Okay, well that that was pre-I'm out with you, it's when we get, like, yeah. that was the, that was the barbed wire fence of the reality that you're, that you Korean towards, Korean or walk, whatever. Sure feels like Korean. And when you go through it, when you go through it, whether you're dragged, climb, get bloody, or vault over it, there, to me there is a definitive thing that you then come out the other side with this collective wisdom and experience, yes. yet also this kind of slightly sad acceptance of your own mortality. Yeah. And then you realize, because it's, and it's again in this great I melt with you thing. Yeah. And then you get it, you go through your 30s, and it's just kind of just like talking you through the age, and then you see it in front of you. And the screen just has a big five, and then you see it. Uh. And then you know, and then you know, definitively, without end, you're closer to the end than the beginning. Well, I'll tell you something. For me, it's not about mortality. I don't think it's about mortality. It's about aging. I am not scared of dying. I am scared of aging. That's the surface. You go from the okay. outside to the inside. Okay. You go from the... It, it becomes exterior. It becomes an interior yeah. thing because you realize the inevitability of that. The inevitability of... For everyone. Yeah, I know. And some people fight it, like, oh my God, fucking inject themselves with the... Some people stave it off. Yeah. Some people try, you know, whatever. I want to stave it off. Everybody takes... Everybody hits it their own way. Men, women, yeah. all different things. But it is there. It is and there. And it doesn't stop. 
I know. I'm just ready. I'm so in the middle of it. I'm so ready to get to whatever the epiphany that that even that sad acceptance. Maybe I'm I'm getting close. It's no. Weird. There's also there's also great. Oh my god! This great exhilarating sense of confidence that comes with it. Too. I hear that huge sense of just like yeah. fucking experience. And I remember, I remember a few years ago, I just turned fifty, and I went and spoke at the Museum of Moving Image, and they had this first kind of retrospective of music videos, and they had four videos that I directed in the retrospective. Wow. And they asked me to come and speak and show some work over the years and they were going to culminate with this a YouTube 3D film that I worked on and co-directed with my friend Catherine Owens. Like she really did most of the work but I helped her. But it was great. And at that point I remember showing my work and I organized my work into like work in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. And the 20s were called speed because everything was fast and aggressive and the blinders and I was like gobble 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 what does the world want me to say chop 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 it was so fast I was processing so fast then the 30s became memory and mortality mm. my father got sick and the video slowed down and the work mm. became more internal as I realized um, and like the 30s were very much about memory and mortality mm. the 40s were labeled trauma death of my wife 2004 huge trauma and processing of that grief, parent death, like a lot of loss that helped me get to the clarity. Now, if I was to title the 50s, it would be clarity and power. And getting sober and quitting smoking and all these other things were the gateway towards that. Like if I had to label it now of and I'm 53, even all the shit that I've done and made in the last two and a half years, I would really definitely I would title it that. Wow. Do they have speed? Do they have mortality and memory? Do they have trauma and process? Mm-hmm. Yes, all of it. So all those words are actually on my website where it's like, yeah, catharsis, spiritual, all those things are collectively part of the larger process artistically and, 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 um, Internally, they're everything. The work yeah. and the thing. There's, there's, there's a very, there's a, there's very little boundaries between work and expression and myself. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're yeah. very. Occasionally, there's the oh, it's a job and I'm a shooter and that's not me. But usually, it's, it's I personalize almost everything. Yeah, yeah. I think that I, I could, say, I definitely that makes sense when you say right. that. In terms of what the actual videos were, so what were the videos in your twenties and thirties? Oh my, I mean that's. Uh, Give what? me like the the your favorite, the ones that come to mind. I always encourage somebody to go to my website, and because actually they're not. And I was thinking about it. I should maybe now think about it arrange my site chronologically because it might be a more interesting view. Well, in arrange it the way you okay, gave that talk. In the 20s, I'll just give you the highlights. Um, in my 20s, I would say the work I did for U2 for their Zoo TV tour, um, um, uh, uh, Public Enemy, these were like my late 20s. Um, a show I did for MTV called Buzz. Um, 
crystal water, she's homeless, these things that were kind of um, aggressive, uh, disposable heroes of hypocrisy, television, drug of a nation, these super, super aggressive kind of media, mediated critiques and onslaughts of the culture we were, pre-internet culture we were going through. Mm. In the third, Jeremy was a real gateway. Jeremy was the first music video I did mm. that was personal, where I was actually able to put my own feelings of shadow side and alienation and childhood pain actually into the abstraction of a video. And, and I was just doing this interview with this guy from the New Yorker the other day about that video. And I think it's just held up for so many years because of the song, but it's like it works on a real mythic archetypical level of like the universal child hiding and dwarfed and and kind of feeling frozen and alienated and um, that probably that core pain or um, is probably at the source certainly later of what made me drink more mm -hmm. and at its core that was when I got married in 1995. The person I was married to understood that pain and probably really protected that. Mm -hmm. And so as I continued in my 20s and 30s and working and doing the work and showing up, I think it wasn't until, I'm jumping time a little bit, that she died in 2004 that my drinking became something that it wasn't showing up for work the next day. It right. started to affect my life, and that's when I first looked at it. That was the first time I looked at it. It wasn't like, hey, I drink, party a little bit more than the average person, or you know, where, where probably a few friends and myself said, hey, what's going on here? Right. And when I had to look at it, when I was hitting the bottle really deep, because when you lose your partner of 10 years, you're severed, and you literally lose your whole identity, so you're just like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on? And you're really in a brutal place. And the alcohol was, um, boy, it was my friend, and it was at times the only salvation to like, just get me through a night. Yeah. And just, boy, I'm just gonna have a few drinks and I'm gonna just fall asleep, because boy, it hurts too bad. Um, and after, you know, after a year of that, I was like, this is really, it's not serving me. This is not, this is, I, I don't like being like this. This is not, this isn't helping. This isn't just having a few drinks to take off the stress. This is a problem. Did it exacerbate depression or did it just sort of knock you out? I think, I mean, I was pretty bummed because of the events, but I think it certainly, yes, I think exacerbated is probably a very good, a good word in looking back, in looking back at it, you know, I was raising my daughter by myself, and I just, I just, I was sad all the time, sad beyond sad, because of the life events, um, it just wasn't, like, it was taking me more and more to get drunk, it just was just, like, it was not, I was not even feeling it anymore. It, yeah, wasn't even be, yeah. it wasn't even becoming like, hey, I'm catching a buzz, and this is kind of like, ooh, I'm getting out of my head. It just became like like numb juice of just like, mm -hmm. this is just like a rote 
you know, it wasn't working. It wasn't serving me. It wasn't doing anything good for me. Do you think, uh, had those life events not occurred, the drinking issues would not have grown to the degree that they did? Don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a, you know, that's a Bob Frost took a left in the woods question. Do you right, know what I mean? Like you right, know, right. You don't know. All I know is collectively, I am so on my knees grateful that I never drove and hit somebody and ruined somebody's life. Right, right. Being behind an automobile. Yeah. Um, that's the number one thing. I probably hurt myself a lot, and I certainly made many amends to, to people that I could, I, I could in that recent history say that, you know, what I really, like, I lashed out at you or I was very sad and angry and reached out and really deeply apologized to people who I, in retrospect, I knew that I had hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- tell me about the decision. That was, 2000, that was 2006. Okay, okay. 2006 is when I went to my first at the encouragement of my therapist just went to I was in his office and he had a week before a couple few times before he had asked me and challenged me very very great guy had said you know don't drink this weekend see it's and when I could not drink for an entire weekend I knew I I had to admit it Mm -hmm. and I came into his office and I said you know, I, I drank. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that I drank, but I did. And the habit or the feeling or that that internal, it's five o'clock, boy, that, that limbic reaction mm-hmm. clicked. And I didn't have the tools or the strength or the willpower or whatever it took. And he said, let's go to a meeting. Come with me to a meeting. Let's oh, go. Oh, he said, let's go. He was a sober guy. Sober. Great guy. Sober said we should go to a meeting. Wow! Looked in his book, opened his drawer, looked in his book. Was we were probably at four in the afternoon, Mm -hmm. three in the afternoon. Goes there's a meeting at six. Jesus, that's ten blocks away. I said, uh, uh, I backpedal. I was like, oh, I got to go home and and um, uh, do something with my daughter. Yeah. He goes, there's an eight o'clock meeting. Right. Right. Can you get a babysitter? So. I had no idea. Like, I had no idea. Oh, my God, there's meetings all the time. Like, right, right, right. All over the place. No clue. Yeah. And, like, I loved and respected the guy. And, like, I said, yeah, let's go to the 6 o'clock. Right? And I think we talked. I went. He goes, all right, come back in an hour. And we, uh, uh, he gave me the address. And I met him. Mm-hmm. And it was on Culver City. Mm-hmm. Culver City. Walked in, 10 people there, and just sat down, and boy, the minute my ass hit the chair, this huge wave of just emotion welled up in me. Oh, God, I could actually just, this, this really beautiful, enveloping, safety. Mm-hmm. And I sat there, and you know I can feel it now. I was just like, 
breathe the breath. And you know, and I remember raising my hand and I remember admitting that I was an alcoholic and I remember just, oh my God, feeling so, um, so good that I can just do it and say it. Um, the feeling of like at the end of that meeting and listening to whoever was spoke, just like thanking, thanking my therapist and just saying, you know, thank you, thank you. And uh, went the next day, the same place. I went to the same place for a few days and then quickly discovered, oh, there's other places I can go and mm. other times I could go and just listened and I listened and I listened and I went every day and I listened and boy you know the first the first week was tough to not buy the thing and I would call him and boy I mean, once I got through three days even just to get through three I was like wow yeah I know I got through three fucking days yeah I got through three fucking days right you know just it's again that just that tipping point or whatever it is it's like once you decide and once you admit and once you surrender and once you realize that there's others oh god and not that I ever felt like, oh my God, I'm alone in every lake. Like, no, no, no. I just, it was almost just like, I, everybody has to get there on their own. Everybody yeah. has to get there on their own way and hope that they don't kill somebody or kill themselves in the process. Yeah. So did it just take from that first meeting and it was just this sort of upward trajectory since then? No. No, because I... I, I, God, I've never used the word fail because I didn't fail. No. I didn't, I was learning what I needed to learn at the time. I continued and went to meetings every day for 90 days. I got a sponsor. I started doing the steps. I got to the fourth step. And I was going to the meeting, and I started when... I always got off on people's pain and their stories and like, and I really, really, really dug the meetings for that reason. And then certain, certain things would be like, oh, to turn about resentments and things. Like, what responsibilities does this person have? Do they have a job or children? Like, and what are they complaining about? And it became like, I was just was like, all right. And I realized, like, everybody's got to do their own thing. There's no judgment about meetings. There's no judgment about AA. Everybody's path is different. Everybody's got to do their own thing. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, I realized, I was like, okay, I stopped going to meetings and kind of stopped doing the steps. And and that was, like, two and a half years into it, and I remember being at somebody's party. I was like, I'm bored drinking Diet Coke. I'm like, I was restless. Mm -hmm. Getting a little angry. Mm Mm-hmm. I was restless. I was like, I'm sick of drinking Diet Coke. You, you know that restless, irritable, and discontent line, right? That that's, yeah. that's our natural state. Yes. And that's why we either drink or, according to program, yeah. find some spiritual solution. Right, exactly. Yeah. God, if you had been with me in the last 48 hours, I was just like, literally my spiritual solution was I just like turned everything off and put my feet on the ground and prayed and said the serenity yeah. prayers and literally got me through. I didn't even think about drinking. Yeah. At that point, I don't think I had the tools. Yeah. I don't think I knew. Yeah. 
So about two and a half years, or two and a half years in, was really making great headway on a lot of levels. Made a movie called Henry Poole is here. It was very sweet, sad, sentimental film about miracles and a hopeless man who's looking for hope. An alcoholic guy that stops drinking with Luke Wilson. Really sweet. Very sad. Very sentimental. You wrote it too? No, I, I, I worked with a screenwriter named Albert Torres on it. Came out in 2009. I did decent. Got some good reviews. Very faith based about miracles. So it was a little, in retrospect, it was a little bit overly engineered in terms of like, boy, I was sad. So I'm going to, this song is going to be sad. And right. Beautiful soundtracks. One person's sad is another person's beautiful. But it was a little bit overly rendered. Like, I, I, if I trusted the script a little more, I probably would have had less music in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A little less like, this is how I feel. Right, I'm right. going to tell you how I feel. I'm going to underline how I feel. Right, right. And this is sentimental. And some beautiful, achingly beautiful stuff. I just watched it. was like, it really, it's a sad, it's pretty sad. Sentimental. It's really from a, but that's how I felt. I could not make that movie now. Yeah. I literally could not make that same. Six months ago, I got offered a film. Not offered, but like they said, this is a movie you could go get. It was a faith-based movie. Mm-hmm. Character in deep pain and very popular, on uh, novel called The Shack. Mm-hmm. And I read it, and I'm like, I'm not that guy anymore. I don't feel that. Yeah. I. I I don't feel some visual opportunities are really great, but I was like, I don't, I just can't relate to it anymore. Right. Um, I'm past that. Like, I just don't, maybe I was like, I don't want to go back to that place, but I was like, I can't, I can't connect. Mm -hmm. I can't connect to this journey, but I could have years ago. So how healing, this sounds like such a cheesy question, is your work for you? Very. It can be very healing, whether it's a anger, a Foo Fighters video, which is really angry and aggressive and vicious and every little construction of five shot montages is my own little psychotherapeutic cathartic Mm. stories I I know what every image means and what every I know all the subtext and I know all the invisible design and every and everything it's very much very much get it out and release it in whatever poem, a film, a little mini documentary, whatever it is, I can always kind of like put wherever I am into it. Well, that makes me wonder, you know, we talked about this a little bit at dinner, this sort of uh, idea that everything happens the way that it's meant to. And, And we talked about it and I said, oh, that's what I think. And I kind of remember you looking at me and going, you know, really, or I, I don't know, I had this feeling that you, you know, you were sort of contemplating and not knowing that you agreed with that or felt that I way. I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. It's like this thing that I just sent my friend, it's this, this guy had written this post, it was really, I posted it really aggressive and really about that that's bullshit. And then in grief, and in deep grief, you're like, that, yeah, that, that, I know. that's a fucking, I don't believe that. I know. But it does, it, no, it just shit happens. There's no reason for it. Like, it's just like, there's no, like, oh, like, fuck that. Right. It sucked. She died. He died. It, the car accident killed four kids and a fucking right. family. You tell me there's a reason for that? No, right. there's no reason. Horrible shit happens. 
all the time. Great shit happens all the time. So it's the balance of the two. Just hope at the end of the day, you're at the front part of the ledger, right? Yeah. And let's hope you have more. And my mother, when she was 84, said, just hope you have more good days than bad days. Wow, yeah. Right? Yeah. And in marriage, and then she goes, look, I have more good days than bad days. Yeah. I consider myself pretty lucky. What is, what is the, like, what do you leave behind? You leave behind your work, your writing, your books, yeah. your relationships, your, you know, I think of this deeply with my 59-year-old friend who just died, the, the memories, like, the lives he impacted, the work he left beyond, like, that's, that's the shit. Right. Everybody drinks, not drinks, struggles, addicted, it's fucking hard for everybody. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, this idea that like, oh, for alcoholics, you know, here we are with a hundred forms of fear and everything is so hard, and it's like, well, actually, the truth is, I mean, for most people, being a human being is very, very challenging. I do feel like I know these people who just are not so ruled by their thoughts, are not constantly going like, am I happy? Is this, you know, and I'm, they're not, you could say, not on a spiritual path, perhaps. I why... I think everybody's brains are different. I think life is very hard for some people. I know that it can be very, it's really hard for people. And some people do get the wrong, some people just get some fucking bad breaks. Sure yeah. You know, some people have really been dealt a hard hand. I know. And struggled their whole lives. And some people seem to have been like, wow, they really just kind of like, uh, mis- the amount of misfortune or challenge that one person faces versus another beyond like, hey, I'm born into poverty and fucking, right. I live and grew up in Haiti and I was born into poverty, like, I, there's no way out of that. Right, right. So what, what do you think that's about? Well, I mean, if you had to... That? Yeah. Why is a, why is a soul born into... Yeah. The universe and the history of the world and the universe and mankind and war and why this region and another and god it's such a huge you're you're a victim of your parents you know you were just like you cannot control who you were who you were born that little boy in Haiti or the Russian kid who lives in America now and he was adopted but he's fucking got fetal alcohol syndrome because his mother like and the kid's got learning disabilities and he's kind of like really having a hard time because his mother drank because her father beat her like and then somebody else is more adjusted Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm I mean I don't know numbers math do you believe in any Chaos. sort of like, like I mean, and this is getting into the reincarnation, karma, anything like that? I mean, I believe in all of it. I believe in all of it. I believe in. The, I believe that people believe in everything. I did this movie, The Mothman Prophecies, and I wasn't into the paranormal. I wasn't into like, like, you know, Loch Ness monster, or these things, or these myths, or these prophecies. My father had Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. I literally saw my father with his hand, and it's in this film I made on him, with his hand up to his ear, talking on the imaginary phone to his friend from sixth grade. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we're gonna go to the farm, and you know, like I'm like, I believe in the power of the mind to create whatever it wants to create, and to believe whatever it wants to believe, and if you believe it and you see it, it's real. Yeah. Oh, he's crazy. 
relatively rel- crazy relative to who? To you, yeah. You might be in the minor dimension, be completely safe and completely happy. A minor outsider artist who's drawing this thing, it's like, wow, man, that's like, so I believe it's all valid and all good. Yeah. And there's like, yeah. We just spend all our time trying to label or categorize and grade and like quantify. Everything seems to be increasingly uh, about quantification and numbers and grades and boxes because it gives us order mm-hmm. because everything's so fucked up mm-hmm. that we look for order. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like our linear stories and our consistent characters week to week because it gives us order. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I can binge watch this. Because A, I can control it. Mm-hmm. B, there's characters that are in an order in a way, shape, or form. Because the rest of my life in the world is so fucked up and so random mm-hmm. that all I'm looking for is like, oh my God, I'm looking for that show or that drink that at the end of the day, I can pour the drink and I can put it down my fucking gullet and I can watch the show and I can smoke the joint and I can be like, thank God. Yeah. And yeah. most Maybe many people just get through their day in these increasingly crazy days because we have to know everything now. And I don't know. I grew up not having to fucking know everything about what everybody else was doing or reading or thinking, constantly bombarded. That's why I really respect my friends that have kind of like don't engage as Mm -hmm. much in social media, Mm -hmm. but like don't have iPhones and are just like, you know, they they have a Blackberry and they do their business on it, but they're, they're just... They're not resolute Luddites. They're just like... Mm. Right. No, they they read more. They socialize with their friends more. Yeah. So they're not as isolated. Yeah. And that's like the alcoholic isolation thing. Yeah. Do so, you struggle with that? No, but, but it's funny that I... And I was talking to my friend yesterday that I think alcoholics... I did realize that... You know, I was definitely spending more time alone. I was definitely a, a lone drinker, drink mm-hmm. home alone. My daughter would be asleep. She would go to bed. I'd put her to bed. And I just would sit in my backyard and drink by myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a big social drinker. So for two and a half years, I was sober. Mm-hmm. And then I went to my brother's 50th birthday party. Mm-hmm. And I said... I can have one drink. Mm-hmm. And he was, and he was not, and we've talked about this later, that he, you know, I don't think he, in both, he didn't really, I think he had one old high school friend that was sober. Again, this was the same UVA, it's like, people drank. Mm-hmm. And there was like, it wasn't, it was like, oh, you can have one. It wasn't like, hey, can you have one? Yeah. And like, nobody talked about Right. Sobriety or AA. I don't think what he, year was this? This was uh, 2009. Yeah. I mean, that was just, yeah, the people you were around. Because sure. yeah, exactly. it's, here, I mean, in Los Angeles, it sort of seems like everybody, you know, half the people are absolutely wasted and half the people are sober. Yeah. Yeah. And in retrospect, you know, it's like my sobriety was not my brother's responsibility. No. I could have said no. Not. Yeah. I, like a month before, not his birthday, I was home for like a year, six months into my sobriety. He said, oh, do you want to, I was like, oh, I said, no. Yeah. He was, they were very respectful of it. It yeah. wasn't like, when people would say, can I, do you mind if I have a drink? I'm like, fine. Yeah. I, I could be around it. Yeah. And I could choose not to. Yeah. 
I could leave the bar early when it's, people started to become looking like idiots. I said, I'm, I'm going to leave now because people are just not getting stupid. Well, and and I don't, I don't want to be around it. Like, I can make that choice. Yeah. But at his birthday party, I, being restless, I, being bored, I didn't even quit smoking for a month. So I'm literally there. With I'm only like, caffeine. I can have one drink. Yeah. I'm going to have one drink, and I'm going to smoke in the special occasion. Mm-hmm. And I remember the cigarette tasting horrible, the drink tasting horrible. But, you know, I powered my way Strong. through yeah. the taste. Yeah. And I felt a little bit out, but I actually felt a little sick. Because mm-hmm. I, I didn't really enjoy the feeling. I didn't really enjoy the, I didn't really get drunk. I didn't really enjoy it physically. I woke up the next day, I was like, oh, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. I flew back home, and I was like, I'm glad that I don't drink. Mm-hmm. Month later, I'm at a friend's wedding. Now, I should, I should probably be like, what was it in both of those circumstances, in retrospect, a 50-year-old, a birthday party that was celebrating with his wife of many years, everybody's there as couples, hey, look at all the couples, grieving, still a widower, 50th, a 50th birthday party, which is very much a celebration of coupledom, mm-hmm. my friend's wedding, another thing. So probably feeling mm. a little bit like an outcast, mm-hmm. a little bit like, oh, this is not, there's something missing. Right. Oh, I'll smoke it, I'll drink it on these occasions, that will be my partner. Yeah, interesting. Three times in three months. And in the third time Engagement in an event? party, yep. wedding, birthday party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All out of town, mm-hmm. all excuses. Each time, hated the way it made me feel, I'm kind of freaked out, resolutely. Whew. What was that about? What was that about? Didn't tell my shrink. Interesting. Did not shame. Uh, did not. Oh no, no, that was an aberration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go back to Baltimore, fourth time. Like, okay, I'm definitely not going to. My mother started to slow down. Was sick. Not cancer sick, but like, literally, I realized I went and saw her. She was 80. I looked at her my dad had died 15 years before I looked at her and said my mom's going to die within a year mm. so she's going to die of old age she's not going to be around in a year I just don't see it I don't see it I started slowing down so at the beginning of the dementia I'm like whatever it is she's near the end mm-hmm. it wasn't like oh I've got cancer I just knew I knew as I just said wow that's coming. I just knew it. And it really bummed me out. Yeah. But I didn't verbalize it. I just, I knew it. A month later, I went home for Christmas. I'll have a drink. Another drink. Drank five or six times over Christmas. Did a job two weeks later in Texas. Drank. Even my friends, my producer, my DP, who were... Like really supported my sobriety. Like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm oh, just. I knew I was already. I knew I, the slippery slope had already gotten. Mm-hmm. I was already cascading down. Mm-hmm. I could see in the video and the images. This band Alpha Rev, a song called New Morning, great band from Texas. I literally was foreshadowing my mother's death in that video. I saw it. I see it in all the images. Completely. Wow. And then was it within a year? Oh, three weeks later. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later. So I knew 
I knew, I knew, just he felt it, I psychically felt it, and um, yeah, so three weeks later, she died, was fully drinking and smoking and using by that point. And how long ago was that? That was in 2000, that was in the you know, spring of 2010, and just hit it pretty hard. Um, economic shit was going on, remember, like at the end of it, like just, shit was just falling apart. And a movie I was supposed to do fell apart. And I just was like, fuck it. And fell into a pretty dark hole. Aggressively dark hole. But really hiding it. Just, you know, get it home and, um, made so when I wanted to make a movie I was like fuck it I'm gonna make a movie and my friend had written this script about these four guys mm. who killed themselves called I'm out with you but in a way I looked and I said wow this is all these guys all represent me in the past they all represent that person from my 20s who's now in the mid 40s who had to face all of these issues of mortality and midlife. Wow, is this what's going to happen? Shame, greed, addiction, ego, 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 all the crap that was in the way. I said, boy, it spoke to me. Yeah. What they were talking about spoke to me. The ugliness of their lives. The, the I was able to put a lot of my shit and not my grief, not really grief, it's other feelings uh, into the script and into the process and really enjoyed it. Shot up in Big Sur, loved doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter and the writer and his kids, and we would have a great time. And I, I literally would be like, would have two drinks every night after we'd finish would go home and would sit outside and have, literally, I would have the two drinks and eat something and that was it. That mm -hmm. was like my, my pattern, my rhythm. Completely, I've never worked lit up. Never, ever, ever, ever. Never missed any shoot. Never missed any call time ever in my life. I just thought that was it and really enjoyed it. It was crazy. It was able to put it all on the screen. Yeah. The actors put it all on the screen for better or worse and just really like kind of was got out of my own head in making the film again like Henry Poole a 180 a 180 tonally a dark fucked up goodbye to these these friendships goodbye to all that crap yeah yeah in retrospect but at the time I literally remember in the process of shooting and editing it as we were finishing the editing of it, I literally felt something lifting. Hmm. I felt it lifting. I felt this. A, a dear friend came over. A dear friend came over. It was kind of, I'd say, a little. Uh, she walked out on the porch, and I knew what she was going to tell me. Mm -hmm. It was the intervention without her having to say a word. Mm hmm. Because I was sad. I was finishing the movie. And in a way, my... Boy, it was when, I'm, when you're editing something and it's 
near the end, it's leaving you. Yeah. So your place to put it is gone. Yeah. And she walked out on the porch, and I said, I know why you're here. And the next day, I went to a meeting. Mm-hmm. Just on my own, I just was like, that's it. And just stopped. Boom. I remember I walked in. Actually, after I walked in, I hadn't had my drink of the day. Mm-hmm. It was like 5 o'clock, and I walked in and just went into the huge bottle of Belvedere I had, just poured it down the drain, threw the bottle away, mm-hmm. and uh, just hugged her and thanked her and probably deeply wept that night mm-hmm. uh, and just went to a meeting the next day. Even called my called my therapist and told him. Said, "Can I come see you tomorrow?" And I saw him, and that was uh, four and a half years ago. And so, and so, since we do have to wrap up, uh, good. What is life like today? If you could, you know, sort of. Well, I'll lead lead you from that moment. What that led to in a really great way was a year later going to the Mayo Clinic and quitting smoking. Mm And they were deeply tied together, mm-hmm. drinking and smoking hand in hand, right? Mm-hmm. As we all know. And when I went to the Mayo Clinic, on the third day at the Mayo Clinic, this young guy, Jeff, counselor, 31, young guy married with two kids, said, when, you're leave, when you leave here in five days not smoking, what will make you smoke or drink again? I said, well, if something happened to my daughter... You know, I would, that would be it. Because, well, how would that change anything? I said, well, boy, it would make me, it would numb the pain and it would just make me reach out for something. He goes, well, how would that change anything? And I thought about it and I just, I realized it was, it wouldn't change a thing. And a, the smallest shift in the world happened at that point. Mm. A shift, a psychic shift, some sort of awakening, some understanding happened sitting on that bed in that room in in Rochester, Minnesota, that I realized that it wouldn't change a thing. Within 10 hours of leaving the Mayo Clinic, a huge professional challenge that made me want to go outside and smoke. Didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Got through it. Got through the tools that they had given me, that AA had given me. I was like, wow. But the smoke, quitting the smoking help me continue to not drink. That makes sense. Completely. Yeah. And then led to other changes in life, moving into a new house, starting to rebuild to the point of like getting out of the shadow of grief of Mm -hmm. like, of literally saying there was a 10 year, it was a 10 year Mm. journey in the wilderness, in the outpost, I literally lived on outpost Mm. of like, okay. Started writing about it, started collecting stuff about it. Again, to process, to work through it. I don't know if it's a book, a book of photos. A co- I don't know what the form of it will be, mm-hmm. but it won't be a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be something that can be um, drinking. I still go to meetings. I don't go, but I don't even believe like judging like as many as I should have. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to drink every day. I'm grateful for not drinking and smoking and using, and I consider it part of my past. But I also like, boy, I like. I'm getting used to what it's like to live not as an addict. Yeah. And I only know three and a half, yeah. three and a half years of it. And that's compared to 30, 
eight years of, or whatever, like many, many 30-something years of right. smoking and drinking and being in that mindset, Yeah. I'm just like, what is it like to not do it? Yeah. And I'm grateful to have the chance to not do it. What a good note to end on, I think, right? I don't know. It's for, you know, for each of your somebody listening, they can, they're going to get what they want out of it. Yeah. Somebody can read your work. Somebody can watch my stuff and it's so subjective. You see it because you see it. Like Burroughs was, William Burroughs was a big influence. Like the idea of perception or understanding is so individualized and subjective that if it makes one person feel less alone, Rita Dove, who's a poet laureate in the United States, told me that one time. She goes, a great poem or a great piece of art or a great song can make people feel less alone. And that's, that's I think, our duty mm. as artists and what you leave behind if somebody can just say, like, wow, that really spoke to me or that really helped me or that really spoke to my anger about something or that story really did X, Y, and Z. Like that's that's what we're here to do. We're here to impact people's exactly. lives, but without this big mantle of like I'm changing people. Because you just, never know. Yeah, I'm fucked up like everybody else is yeah. out there. So I'm just trying to survive and get by and learn and you know, every day until you fucking drop dead. Oh my god, I know it all. Boom. Right. 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 So whoever says they know it, a is liar. This, but but by the way, this did remind me of this. I, I've been really into Mary Oliver poetry lately. I don't know if you know yeah, her stuff. Sure. Yeah, but like this one that has been like deeply affecting me is I've been sort of processing all this time passing. Which one? The one it's actually just part of it and I'm probably gonna completely malign and That's not, okay. The one the one where, you know, to live in this world you must be able to do three things. To I think okay, to love what is mortal and hold it against your bones like your whole life depends on it and Ooh, then beautiful. when the time comes to let it go to let it go ah ah so yeah i mean talk about something that is personally effective and and yeah i mean it is all individual and it's why somebody's like i love this movie oh god that's the worst movie or even in a meeting with the worst speaker i've ever heard oh my god that was the best speaker i've ever heard you know it always astounds me how individual our brains are you know there's a great book that i will recommend to the listeners of this podcast by the great poet and writer david white has a book called consolations and they're essay poems on 52 words that are some of the most inspiring pieces, collections of language ever. David the, White. David White. W-H-Y-T-E. Okay. Constellations that are really... I made a film called Honesty um, that's on my website, markpellington.com. Mm -hmm. And it's under new work. And it's an eight-minute portrait of people's faces set against his words and music and the words honesty is reached through the doorway of grief and loss and it talks about our inevitable need to feel the powerlessness right and humility that comes from just truly accepting our law, our lack of control mm -hmm. in the world. And when you really admit that, you really admit that you have no power in the world that you can let go and completely get to that. I mean, it's just so inspiring and just opens up with like, fuck. It was a 
huge gateway to in healing for me in terms of just like in transcending and getting to that spiritual place for me and my own personal grieving mm -hmm. yet every 50, all 50 people I shot all were deeply affected by being in it then everybody that watches is all like they just again like you said they find themselves in it or they have their own reaction to it but David White's a real like a real good and that's the great thing about the internet and Facebook is people post great stuff all the time words and essays that can really like really hit you at any one point right right shout you out know. to social media for all the terrible things yeah, that it does stuff and the podcast and what you're doing and what you're putting out there and just like just like boy there's a hunger for it there's really just there's um you know so we just all gotta help each other you know okay that is truly the note we're ending on because i'm pressing stuff so that was mark pellington on after party pod podcast about addiction and recovery the one that you are subscribed to unless you aren't in which case you should go do that now until next time amanda david <laughs>